Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done about 610 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see them organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's a page which explains some alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Christian Sundberg. Christian lives in Erie, Pennsylvania area. When he was a young child, he remembered his existence before coming to Earth. While that memory left him completely for his early adult life, It spontaneously returned at the age of 30 as he took up a meditation practice and went through a personal awakening journey. He also began to have out-of-body experiences, which we might refer to as OBEs. Christian has worked for over 15 years as a professional project manager for complex nuclear pump and valve manufacturing products, Homer Simpson's old job. Christian has also presented at over 80 public speaking events, as he now seeks to remind others, in at least a small part, of who we all really are beneath the human play. So, welcome, Christian. Good to have you. And I've really enjoyed listening to your entire book, A Walk in the Physical. I felt like I was totally on the same wavelength as you in terms of my metaphysical or philosophical understanding of things, and uh, that every point in your book could be a springboard for a conversation about something. But, you know, one question I thought I would start with before you even uh, tell your whole story about how you ended up doing what you're doing is how is it that we know this stuff? You speak quite authoritatively, even though not dogmatically, about all kinds of points that most people would consider to be mystical or hypothetical or philosophical or religious or something, but there's a certain confidence in your tone And I can resonate with that. I mean, I kind of believe these things too, but do I believe them because I've read a lot of metaphysical books over the years and have been meditating for a long time? Or am I actually tuning into some deeper knowledge and that's why it makes sense to me? Because this stuff doesn't make sense to everybody. A lot of people would think we're nuts, you know, with the kinds of things we're going to discuss today. So how do we know this stuff? Well, the deeper parts of us are not just this experience that we're having, this physical experience and this character. The deeper parts of us know. Uh, we all sense it deep down. We may be very deeply veiled for a time. <laughs> you know, the human experience is a relatively extreme experience <clears throat> in, the, in the direction of separation, apparent separation. Uh, but who we really are, the substance of what we are, the substance of our spirit or consciousness, it knows. You know, we all sense deep down um, in some way that it seems inarticulatable what we really are. And um, I recognize that I may have made certain statements in the book that sound confident, very confident. Most of the book is. Um, but that knowing is not from some, it's really hard to describe. It is when one is knowing one's true nature, these things are simply deeply known it is not a matter of reading a book or coming across some new intellectual understanding. Intellectual understanding is its own limited, human intellectual understanding is its own limited subset of a much larger understanding that takes place within us. So while we're veiled, 
we tend to very deeply associate with the limited human understanding, and almost exclusively, perhaps even for an entire lifetime. But the deeper parts of us that transcend even some of the very fundamental properties of our reality, like linear time and discrete location, those parts of us do exist right now, and, and we are already connected to and a part of those. So would you say that atheists or skeptics or people who might listen to the conversation we're about to have or, or who might read your book and say, this is all bollocks, none of this makes sense to me, would you say that they have that attitude just because they're more heavily veiled or shrouded than other people? Well, I don't want to pigeonhole it by saying a yes or no in that way. I actually relate very much with atheists sometimes more with atheists than those who are very dogmatic. <laughs> True. Fact, because it is important to have a skeptical mindset. I mean, that is a very important part of our journey is to be able to look at things objectively and to really evaluate them hard, you know, with a hard, hard evaluation. I do feel that the, the more we focus on the physical and on our understanding of the physical and on, on our beliefs and interpretations within the physical, the more deeply wrapped in it we become. The veil is kind of organic, so the longer we're here, the more we're focused in it, the, the deeper and deeper it gets. In fact, that's what it's meant to do. So it is actually quite natural when we're here to have almost no conscious at the human level. And we, we do have consciousness at a deeper level. But at the human character level, it's quite common not to have conscious awareness of our deeper nature. And when that's the case, of course, materialism appears on the surface to be quite real and practical and the, you know the end all and be all but that's just the nature of the simulation you know it's a very good simulation so i don't want to categorize the type of person that might feel that way i like i said i very much respect those who are very skeptical and, and atheists I, I i think that's just fine you know there's no need to have an intellectual model but for those who are interested in exploring these things are very real they're much more real than we can put into some words in a book or say to each other in the physical because they transcend the physical entirely. <laughs> so we're very limited in what we can say. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's important that we share nonetheless. Yeah, I kind of agree with you about, I, I also respect atheists and skeptics. I like listening to Sam Harris, for instance. In a way, I, I have a lot more respect for him than I do for sort of people who just undiscerningly buy into any woo-woo idea that comes down the pike. Yeah. I ran into a woman last summer. We had had a, a big storm in Iowa called the derecho, which did billions of dollars worth of damage. And uh, somehow that topic came up. And she said, oh, that was the Pleiadeans. They came and, and caused that derecho. And I was thinking, oh, really? Must have been like teenage Pleiadians on a boring afternoon. You know what? Let's go 500 light years and do some damage in Iowa. <laughs> you know, people who think in goofy ways like that, I'd much rather listen to Sam Harris. I understand. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I mean, I think we're very quick to grasp onto some new belief. You know, it doesn't matter if it's this dogma or this new age belief, or maybe it's, maybe it's this guy in this video. Maybe now I can believe him. It, it's, it's, it's important that we don't just believe things. Um, in fact, the, the truth of what we are so transcends earthly content that we almost have to step away from belief in order to really experientially touch the truth of what we are. You know, we have to be willing to rigorously investigate what we really are, awareness itself, which transcends thought. Thought, a belief is in thought. You know, it's grabbing a new thought form, being like, okay, now, now that, now I'm going to grab onto that. See, now I got to figure it out. See, now 
the storm must be caused by this other thing. And now I'm going to patch these two things. Now we got to figure it out. Humans are very quick to then proclaim, oh, I got to figure it out. Here's the truth now. Let's share it. It can't be done. You know, and I think that's one of the hardest things about um, any of these kind of conversations, because if you touch that substance of what we are, you know, it cannot be said, <laughs> cannot be put into form. So it's just so daunting to attempt to. In fact, I feel like even just saying one sentence or writing one sentence, I'm just wrong. It's almost like I shouldn't even try. But on the other hand, there is great value in the exploration process. And it is important that we proceed in the process of personal growth, evolution. And that means considering new ideas and intellectually evaluating these things. So that's why I wish to share. If the kind of experience that um, you're going to be talking about here were common, if everyone had that kind of experience, then we probably could talk about it a lot more because we'd probably have much more of a common language for it. It's like if you go to a convention of people who like Italian food, you could get into big discussions about this kind of pasta and this kind of pizza. And, and they all know what you're talking about because they've had the actual experience. But if you went and talked to some Eskimos about it or something, they wouldn't have any idea what you're saying. So it's, just, it's a little bit of a matter of how rare or common subtle experiences are, whether or not we can converse about them. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word subtle experiences. I know on the surface they appear to be subtle, but when they are actually known, they're not subtle. <laughs> but anyway, I, I agree very much with what you're saying. It is one of the reasons I very much enjoy conversing with near-death experiencers, NDEers, or pre-birth experiencers. There's a shared language. Like we can jump <laughs> to the end of the alphabet, have a real dialogue. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of people who are not familiar with it, and that's okay. That's the nature of what we're doing here. Alrighty. Well, you and I could actually go on for two hours like this without even talking about your story, but let's hear what happened to you. Then we have some interesting questions that have come in from people, and I'll, we'll talk about all kinds of things. But tell us your story. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to share the story, even though, like we've already identified, that it, it cannot be said. I just feel it's very important to say that, because our true natures and the higher realms from which we come are just so beyond language that, like I said, it's just as soon as I put a word on it, it pigeonholes it, and it's just wrong. But I'll still try, because I think it's important that we share this information with each other and remind each other of who we really are, because whether or not we all consciously remember it at the human level, I feel that we all have had experiences like this, at least to some degree, and it, they're in there. <laughs> you know, whoever you are listening, they're in there somewhere. Okay, so I'll start at the beginning of what I remember from my pre-life, but even order is difficult because while these memories do have a sequence, they also transcend linear time and they're all kind of happening all at once right now. They're more like they're alive, they're real now, not just in the past, even though they do feel extremely ancient at the same time. So it's difficult to put a, an identifier on that. But I remember long ago, before I had ever been physical, coming across a being who had been physical. This being was so beautiful and overflowing with joy and power. And I felt that from him because in those environments, you share what you feel and who you are is shared with those around you. And it's, it's telepathic exchange that's quite perfect. And so I asked him, my goodness, do you feel the depths of joy that I feel that you feel? And he shared it with me and kind of let me 
go into it and feel it and dive into it. And I was absolutely amazed. And I said, what did you do? What could you possibly do to become this, to be this, to have this quality of essence or nature? And he shared with me, well, he shared with me several things, but chief among what he shared with me was that he had lived physical lives and he had had one physical life in particular where he had suffered very deeply for years, for a long period of time. And the way that he chose to meet that experience and the acceptance and the quality of intent, that's the Tom Campbell term that I, I love, the quality of intent that he brought into his experience there was so beautiful that it had allowed a certain refinement of his being, of what he was. And I asked him, were you healed? You know, because I could sense how deeply he had been not truly damaged, but damage is the only word I can think of, temporarily damaged through this deep experience of wounding that he had had in this physical experience. And he shared with me that he was healed. And I felt the depth of this healing. And I said, I want to do that. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And I was, I was just so moved and inspired. And uh, he said something to the effect of, yeah, that's what they all say. So what you've explained so far implies that in the realm in which you were living, people who had had physical lives were somewhat rare because you ran into this guy and it's like, whoa, what happened to you? And it's like, you know, apparently you didn't run into such beings all the time. So is that a true observation? Yeah, I mean, from the one specific memory that I have, yes, that would be true. I was We were with many beings at the time. But he shone or shined with a brilliance that was very unique and definitely got my attention. I don't know how frequent it is. I do have a sense that there are far more beings who do not incarnate into physical experiences of separation like this than there are that do. So we are the minority. I would say that I wouldn't dare to guess. And I presume <laughs> that they couldn't be identified in some geographical or spatial location. It's more a dimensional thing, which doesn't necessarily even overlap with our geography here, our location as there, Earth. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so all I can say to that is there is a vibrational geography. Okay, so there are many different reality systems and the way that we experience them is rather unique, very different depending on the rules of each reality. Most are thought responsive. Earth is much less so. It's still thought responsive, but much, much slower. Um, because here it's so dense. we learn because it's so dense. Right. Yeah, Earth is an extremely dense experience by comparison. So here on Earth, we experience spatial distance. That's one of the root qualities of what we experience here, but that is not a fundamental thing. In fact, distance is an illusion. Physical distance is an illusion. There's not, there's not really a physical distance. There's the experience of distance. There's a big difference there. <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm going to try to identify how those places are separated. But I would say that there is a vibrational distinction between them that is very unique and potent and perhaps very unearth-like. I mean, where I, where I was at the moment, I remember coming across this being... I was moving across what I can only describe as like a landscape. I remember a visual experience of being with many, many other beings, beings of light. I perceived all of us as being of light, and this being was with us doing the same thing. But he, his quality was hard to miss because of what he was energetically. Could it be that many of the beings you hung out with had had earthly lives, but this guy was a much more highly evolved being among them. And so that's why he's shown so brightly. 
I'm only speculating if I try to speak to that. I don't know. I, it, I guess it could be, but all I know is I remember that his quality of his nature was significantly, like breathtakingly beautiful compared to what I had sensed and who we were around us. I mean, if you want to put it in very crude terms, you could say I was, I don't like these terms, but a young soul by comparison, something like that. I mean, we had less experience, at least not in that way. I had not done that before. <laughs> and I feel that the others that were there in that, in that environment, in that moment, were similar to me, whereas he was dissimilar. But I, I'm not going to try to speculate on that. That's okay. Uh, all right, please get on with your story. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so he encouraged me to go talk to my guides. And so I did that. So then I lived many lives. I don't know how many, but at least in the hundreds. And I went back to him later and I found him and I, I shared with him, see, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm in the process of doing this. And he, and he was encouraging. So between the time you first met him and the time you went back to him later, you actually went through hundreds or hundred earthly lives. Yes. I don't know if they were earthly. I just oh. know that I was physical. Incarnate lives somewhere. Some kind of physical incarnate lives. Okay. I don't know what they were. So then... The majority of this pre-birth memory, though, takes place at a time that is somewhat immediately preceding this life, where I had, okay, so I had taken a long break. <laughs> After a previous incarnation, I just decided I was taking a, a long break, metaphorically like being on a long weekend that you're like not willing to give up, or a vacation where you're just like, I'm not going back to work. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And I remember this guide coming to me over and over again, like, are you ready to go back yet? Are you ready to go back yet? And putting him off, like, repeatedly over and over. And eventually he came back, are you ready to go back yet? And I said, yes, okay, now I'm, I'm ready. Are these guides people like you and I who have had earthly lives and now we're doing a stint as guides on the other side? Or are they of some other nature and serving, you know, maybe they haven't even ever been incarnate beings? I don't know the answer. Just curious. I only know, yeah, no, I, I only know the quality of the nature of the being. So when we interact with each other on that side, it's very personal and exposed and true and colorful. So the the nature of the being that you're interacting with is known and felt by you. So I don't I don't know if this being was physical. I would if I just had to guess. I would say probably they have been physical, but I don't know that. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Continue. No, it's okay. So, yeah. so this being and I reviewed my state, who I had been, what I was, what I had known, what I had done. It was kind of like, this is really hard to explain, and this is a very crude metaphor, so please forgive the metaphor, but it's like if you looked at like a, a bar chart or something, like a vast bar chart, and it was it was obvious the thing that I needed to work on. I don't even like the word work on, but the thing that I that it would be best for me to engage and integrate and grow through. It was apparent. There were many qualities that I had and that I knew, I understood, that were a part of me, but there was this one area that it was just blatantly obvious. Like there was no like careful discernment needed. It was like <laughs> it was like right there glaring, like, oh yeah, I really gotta do something about that. And that thing, the best way I can describe it was a fear that had overcome me in a previous physical experience. And this fear was so dark and so low vibration. In this previous physical experience, it had led me down a path where I eventually 
died a physically agonizing death. And I, I knew after that life that the fear had led me into this place where I experienced much pain. It had bested me is the best way to put it. Like I was bested by this, this certain experiential vantage point, a certain low vibration fear. So I was super excited at the opportunity to re-engage this because I knew that if I could meet this fear and integrate this experience, if I could do that, the expansion of being, the expansion of who I was, and even the expansion of all that is, would be just unfathomably beautiful. It would be the most wonderful, beautiful thing to be able to do that. But I also knew even then that it was like extremely low vibration. So I, I asked the guy, is it even possible? <laughs> like, is something this low, this far from source, has any being ever in all of creation ever integrated an experience of this vibration? And I was told, yes. And you have all of time available to you to, you to do so. There's no hurry. So I knew, and this sounds so strange to me now from the human perspective, but I, I remember knowing deeply in who I was that, well, if it can be done, then I will do it. If it can be done, then I, I will do it. Someone named Susan from New York sent in a question related to this very point you're making, and perhaps it'll help you elaborate it. She said, Christian has said he knows he is here to face fear. He's also described it as facing pain, and if he can meet the challenge, it will result in the development of great freedom. I'd personally appreciate it if he would try to explain what the fear is, what the pain is. I think that would be helpful to me and to others in trying to understand our reason for being here. Sure. So when we're physical, we like to think of fear in terms of fear of something, like fear of spiders or fear of leaving the home or fear of heights or something. But fear is actually a vibration which is very dissimilar from our native state. It is a self-perception that is not in alignment with the truth of who we really are. So when we perceive something like, I am not worthy of love, and we believe that, we suffer, we feel pain, and fear can arise, because the truth is we are worthy of love. (laughs) Or we might feel, I have no freedom in my life, or I have no power. These perceptions that we buy into are not in alignment with the truth of who we really are, and so they prompt fear. There's a line in in the Upanishads which says, certainly all fear is born of duality. When you refer to what we really are, would it be true to say that what we really are is beyond duality and that because we have stepped out into the dualistic field, fear is kind of at our, there's a certain root fear that we all possess? Yes, I think so. If you want to identify a root, I'll get back to the original question in a moment, but to speak to this root fear idea... The root fear is that separation is not our natural state. We're veiled right now. So when we're veiled, we experience being separate. Like everybody here feels separate from the objects around them. Well, most people feel separate from the objects around them and from each other. And there's this unnatural disconnectedness and our native knowing is gone. So we feel like we don't know, kind of in the dark, and we're not connected to each other. So that state of separation is something that is very non-native. And so while we're here... Fear arises naturally, and then the ego is just the portion of us that arises to try to fix the problem, because now there's this big problem, right? (laughs) Now we're separate. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I don't know what's going on. I don't have any power. I don't feel loved. I don't like it. So the ego is just grabbing on to whatever it can. Okay, now I have power because I can do this, or now I have value because I belong to this group, or whatever. You know, whatever tricks the ego is going to play to try to fix the problem, we just want to very broadly paint a broad brush. 
that state of separation prompts a root fear in us because we're now we're in duality. Now we think that duality is fundamentally real when it's not. In my case, this fear can best be described as the fear of being in a state where I perceive that I'm unable to escape pain mixed with a feeling of being too proud to suffer. So like, I reject this suffering. I can't tolerate this. I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm too proud for this. That vibration of rejecting my experience and not being able to escape pain is the fear. So when I was 22, I had a traumatic experience in Chengdu, China, and I had a heat stroke and I was in a Chinese hospital for four days. And whether it's the many bags of potassium they gave me or something else, I don't know, but I experienced this neurological burn that was extremely physically painful. And then that led to an extreme psychological pain because I could not escape this pain. And so I was traumatized because at the moment I could not tolerate it. I rejected it entirely and blocked it all off. And I went through counseling for seven or eight years to try to process that experience. And I did layer by layer through what's called EMDR therapy, meet these many layers of fear that I had that really went back to my childhood, but climaxed at this grand traumatic moment when I was 22. And after years of counseling, I did end up finding the root fear, this terrifying moment when I was laying in a Chinese hospital bed, feeling like I was going to die and that I had no power to escape this agony that I was in after my heat stroke. I can see it now. I can talk about it now. But at the time, it was quite just breathtakingly painful to even look at. So that's a way to, okay, so that's my description of the fear, but it has to do with the vibration because the truth of our being is total freedom, total love, total joy, total peace. And so what we do is we, okay, this is a crude metaphor, but if the source is like, I don't know, this is a duality. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting this in duality, so it's automatically not going to work. I'll try, I'll just try. So like if our source is where we start and then we can go this far away vibrationally to this type of experience, or maybe even this far away, or maybe even this far away, the further we can go in experience space, that is vibrationally, if we can integrate that experience and process that, and when I say integrate, I mean meet it in such a way that not just intellectually, but in the being, as Tom Campbell says, at the being level, who you are level, you totally engage that experience and process it and come to terms with it and accept it and integrate it into who you are in such a way that it is no longer painful. If you can do that all the way out here, then there's this expansion of being that is breathtakingly powerful because we've come so far away in the physical that to do that here enables a fantastic amount of expansion, a huge amount of expansion that is not possible in other reality systems that are less strict. So this actually relates to a question that Frank in Norway just sent in. He says, how do we contribute to creation with human creativity in ways spirits do not? So in other words, what you're saying is, as a non-corporeal being, we gain something in physical reality that we just couldn't without gaining a physical body. So there's an evolutionary purpose to our coming here and being faced with challenges, sometimes extreme challenges. Yeah, exactly. That's very difficult to put into words, but I'll just use a crude metaphor. This is so crude, but it's very difficult to think of physical ways to express this. 
So if you're sitting on your living room couch watching the television, it's super comfortable and nice. You can sit there all day. You just sit there forever. And then eventually you say, I think I'm going to go for a run. Why would you ever voluntarily get off the couch, go outside and run and put your body under stress and maybe suffer for a while while you're running? Why would we ever voluntarily do that? Well, there's something that is available, a growth that is available only under the stress of the run. So now that's a very basic metaphor. Here, what we are experiencing is the stress of the counterpressure of circumstance, the counterpressure of duality. So when we know pain, we know real pain here. You know, we really experience pain here, sometimes a lot of pain. What kind of choice making, what kind of intent, that's the, that's the key, what intent can we bring forward, even in that circumstance, when it's hard, when it's painful? Can we love the person next to us, even when we hurt, or even when they've been unkind, or even when our bodies are failing, or even when what, whatever, in all the circumstances of life? Can we do that? Because this is the place to do that. And when we can bring forth that quality of intent, even in the rich contrast, that allows a refinement of who we really are, which transcends the physical. Because then the physical is over. Now you step out of the highly constraining environment, but you retain the qualities of your consciousness that you developed while you were engaged in the physical. I don't like to only pigeonhole this, though, to just like personal development. There's a huge amount of development. There's purposes that are greater than that. But I just, I'm just focusing on this one idea for now that when we drop the physical and the dense constraints are no longer a part of us, all that we developed of who we are while we were here remains, but now it is being actualized in systems that are far less constraining. What about children who are born into very difficult circumstances and undergo a lot of suffering and die before they've even reached a level of maturity at which they have volition? Did even they gain something from going through an ordeal like that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's the human portion of us that typically thinks that success means achieving some level of some kind of maturity, whether it be physical or societal or something, and then getting something done. The spirit is consciousness, and so it knows experience. Experience is the currency, or <laughs> that's a bad word. Experience is the stuff we're working with. So if you can be a child for one year and have that experience and then be passed, that's amazing. That's an amazing experience. And also then others that were affected by you and experienced being with you here in this context, it's amazing for them because you added to the context for them. This is actually a good segue for you to continue telling your story because you had one lifetime in which you didn't even live to be born. You died in the womb. So yeah. continue with the, your story. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that is, after reviewing this, they brought me a life, not this current life, but a, an, an immediately preceding life that was perfect for my intention. And I reviewed that life and I accepted it because it was super appropriate for my intention. Like the life had to be vibrationally appropriate and work circumstantially with what I wanted to do, what I wanted to experience. And it did. It was, it was very appropriate. So then I had to accept the veil for this life. This is the thing that I remember most. That is the process of allowing the veil to come over me and feeling the vast plummet in vibration of what I am down into the physical vantage point. I like to describe it like a pitch. Like if you have an amplifier that's producing a pitch, like, you know, and then you turn the knob down, 
and then when you get to the bottom, you turn it down some more, 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 turn it down, keep turning it down some more. And then when you think you're at the bottom, you turn it down a few more times. That's how it felt in the body of my consciousness to go from all connectedness and all knowing down, 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 this incredibly deep drop down into the comparative darkness and separation of being in the womb. Like I felt like being erased or being cloaked. And then when I arrived at the physical place, which was as a physical body in the mother that I had not been born yet, when I arrived at that place, it was very separate and dark and alone, and I didn't have my knowing, and I did not like it. (laughs) And so within a few seconds, I reacted very strongly in fear. I mean, this goes back to your question about the root fear. That root fear arose mightily in me, and I was like, I am not doing this. This is so dark. This is so low vibration. I am not doing this. And so I mustered my might and I smoked the veil. I fought my way out. I pushed past it. And as I did that, I became aware that I had inadvertently killed the fetus that was to be my body. Do you have any idea at what um, stage in the gestation process the soul enters the body? (laughs) I've heard it like three months or something like that, which is an interesting consideration because you weren't just a little zygote at that point. You had actually developed enough perhaps to occupy a body. Well, I didn't develop enough. The body The body did, enough. I mean to I, say, yeah. I was becoming the experience, the bodily experience. So I had a life review and I became aware for that super short life. Like, I don't know how long I was there, but it was <laughs> not very long. I became aware of how I had very negatively impacted the mother. And not only the mother, but... I felt these ripples, like hundreds of other people that were negatively impacted by the mother because of the sorrow that I had imposed on her. It was like I felt that I had heaped difficulty on the mother and hundreds of other people, and I knew them all. They were all my family, my friends, and, I, and my, these players in the game that were playing the human game. and being, I had so much respect for these other beings that were willing to be human, and I had only made their journey more difficult. Yeah, good going, dude. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> That's how I felt. From the other side, you know that everything is okay. You have a very tangible, like it's, it's very clear that it's just a play, it's okay. But I was like, oh man, I got to do something about this. I have so much fear, like this is too much. So I knew that I wanted, I still had my attention to face and process this fear. But that, that life opportunity was wasted. So I spent some time in what can be called a veil acceptance simulator. I don't know what it is, but it's a place that I went was like a room where you can practice surrendering to the veil. It's not a real veil. It's like a mock veil. It's kind of like jumping into a dark pool or something and having them plunge you under the water. And you just practice like letting go and being okay with being under this dark water. And you can cry uncle if you want to get out, <laughs> you know, because it's not real. Kind of like a flight you know, simulator like for pilots. Yeah, like a flight simulator for incarnation action. Okay, so I did that for a while, and then they brought me this current life. So I reviewed this life in incredible detail. I reviewed what can only be described as a vast flowchart of millions and millions of possibilities of how this life might unfold and what it would be like to experience it and be it. it it wasn't just physical events. It was more like, who would I be? What would it be to be Christian, this, this human, at these various stages? 
it was kind of like if you took a tree and laid it on its side and the trunk was very thick and the branches were thinner and you started at the thick end and then you kind of worked your way out as the life progressed. It was like that, except there were millions of possible branches, some that were extremely likely and some that were much less likely. And I reviewed all that and also asked certain things and made certain requests for the life. For instance, I said I, I would like to be intelligent again in this life because I knew I had been intelligent in previous lives and I preferred that trait. And they said, yes, you can do that. And I also knew that my parents were important. They would bestow certain qualities to me. Like, for instance, I knew that my father would instill a confidence in me and that that confidence would be paramount to me being able to have a rock to stand on to meet this fear. I also knew that it was important that I be male, not in any ways, not judging anything about the sexes. It's just that the two sexes have different energetic qualities to them. And there was something of an obtuse edge, even, you know, some kind of edge that being male would be helpful for me to, to meet this primary intention of mine to meet this fear. So I reviewed all that and I was super excited. Like if I could just communicate one emotion that was like the key emotion, it was incredible excitement. And I felt so, so, so deeply honored that I was being given the opportunity to be a human and to play a human life. It was like being given the most precious gift in the universe. There's only so many slots, only so many precious character opportunities. And to be given one of those is like, oh, my gosh, it was just like being given the most precious gift in the world. Okay, so I remember there having to be a moment to accept the life. I don't remember that moment, but I do remember then the next thing is being in this place where Actually, just before that, I was in this like waiting area, waiting for it to start. And I remember this guy coming to me and then like suddenly grabbing my attention almost rudely, not, not rudely, but just very like abruptly, like go now, like now you're on earth time. You got to go now. Like if you want to do this now, like jogging me out of higher time or something to get focused at the right place. And I was then with these beings in this place that I, uh, I can only describe it as these beings as like technicians. And this place was like, it looked like a, a pit or something. And these technicians, these mechanical beings do this thing where they apply the veil to you because the life has certain qualities and the body has certain qualities and limitations and the soul has many rich personal qualities. And they do this thing where they like make the veil fit. Somehow they make it, it's like organic and they make it like jive. And they asked me one last time, are you sure? And I knew that this was the last moment. If I said yes, then there was no going back. This is like, once you press this button, you're in the roller coaster for the duration of the ride. <laughs> and so I said yes. And then I remember the veil coming over me once again, and this huge, huge, huge plummet in vibration, down, 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 lower, 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 lower. And this time, just basically just try not to fight it. Don't fight it. Just let go and let the veil do what it will do. Let it take hold of me. Surrender my control to it. It was important to surrender to it. And so I let that happen. And then moments later, I was here deeply in the darkened, separated, and dark is not the right word, but the separated state of being veiled. And I sent one message back to the technicians, did it take? Like, did the veil take? And they sent one message back, yes. So I was super excited. I'm like, okay, I made it. Awesome, I'm here. So then I was there for a while, and then I said, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Once again, I was like, this is so dark. This is so separate. This is so ridiculously low vibration. I am not going to tolerate this. So once again, I began to muster my might to find my way out. 
as I did that, the most holy moment in my whole earthly life happened. The spirit of God, or whatever word we want to use for it, the great spirit of the I am, the light, came to me and showed me experientially all that I really was, the stars and the whole universe, the galaxies. I felt our own sun, the sun of earth, churning within me, and it was churning in bliss. It was just like this burning, rich, deep bliss of being. And I felt connected to all things again. And the Spirit said, this is still what you are. You can never not be this. So that moment is the most precious moment of my physical walk. It calmed me. You know, I was like, oh, that's still what I am. That's beautiful. <laughs> so that allowed me to just relax and be in the womb. I get the and feeling that the reason you, that it makes you so emotional to think of that was not only the profundity of the experience, but the sense of love that you were feeling, you know, the amount of love for you that this intelligence yeah. who showed you the experience has. Yes, that's true. Love is our very nature, what we are. It's beautiful. It was like what I was afraid of was losing what I am. And I sensed that I had not lost what I was. Right. And you could actually say that to all seven or eight billion people on the planet, right? I mean, Yes. Theoretically, they could all have that experience and realize that that's what they are, and it would that would be true. It's just that it's rather right. rare for people to have an experience like that, but it's nonetheless true. I think it's not rare. It's just veiled. <laughs> yeah. Well, in other words, yeah, it's veiled. So it's yeah, it's there. Not consciously it's, aware. It's actually it's there, but but it's covered over. So then, the next memory I have is of being born. I remember the shock of being born. The temperature. You know, cold, touching, light, sound, just all stimulus happening. And I had no idea what was going on. I had no intellectual understanding at all. I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but this is intense. There are people touching me. I remember looking at the nurses. who I now know that the nurses at the time, I just knew that there were these beings taking care of me and addressing me somehow. And I was like, oh, who are these beings who are taking care of me? I felt so much love for them. I remember feeling like an intense amount of love for, the, for just everyone in the room. And I have just one visual image memory of the day I was born, the layout of the room, like where the bed was and where the window was and where my mother was, where the heating grate was. And then after that, uh, no memories for quite a while. I mean, I have some spotty memories of being in my crib here and there. But when I was about maybe like three or four, I remember being aware of my pre-birth experience and assuming everybody knew we were just visiting, like this is just a neat place we're coming to visit. And I had assumptions that certain things in the other realities that are true would be true here. Like, for instance, I assumed that we would be able to feel each other's emotions here. You can't do that most of the time. <laughs> most of the time we, we feel separate. And I remember assuming that if teachers or leaders, anybody in a position of authority or power, that they would be loving and wise. Because in the other reality systems, any being that's in a position of, I don't want to use the word authority, but a position of help, leadership is loving and wise that's why they're in that position you know because they're loving and wise man it's taken me my whole life to really come to terms with how untrue that is <laughs> many times on earth it's just not yet how our society actualizes so that's a summary of the experience so i had that memory until i was about five definitely lost it by the age of six or seven you know i had no no memory of that i grew up i had my traumatic experience at age 22 and then at the age of 30, after I began meditating, after a few months of meditation, I began to have brief at first, but very impactful non-physical experiences that were very eye-opening. 
you know, they were very like not subtle, shockingly, like, how could I experience that? That was crazy. And then as, as those experiences started, I also began having these memories return, but as they returned, it wasn't like, ta-da, it was like, they were always there. I could just see them now. And it was like, how did I ever forget that? Like, it was the most natural thing in the whole world. And it was just always there, but I just didn't see it. I did not share this experience for the first seven or eight years. I felt like it was not the right time. And I just felt like it just wasn't, like the ground wasn't fertile. But then a few years ago, I felt like, okay, you should share. So I'm doing it. I'm sharing that message um, because that's what we really are. <laughs> you know, we're not just this human character walking around living these lives where we feel fear and limitation. We are so much more and you know, I feel like if we can just remind each other of that, then man, you know, that can go a long way to helping that love, that higher nature to come into this very dense place, to actualize for each other. That's a, that's a great thing if we can do that. I was reminded as you were speaking of a quote from an Indian saint named Swami Brahmananda Saraswati. To get a human body is a rare thing. Make full use of it. There are four million kinds of lives which a soul can gather. After that, one gets a chance to be human, to get a human body. Therefore, one should not waste this chance. Every second in human life is valuable. If you don't value this, then you will have nothing in hand and you will weep in the end. Because you are human, God has given you the power to think and decide what is good and bad. Therefore, do the best possible action. You should never consider yourself weak or a fallen creature. Whatever may have happened up to now may be because you didn't know, but now be careful. After getting a human body, if you don't reach God, then you have sold a diamond at the price of spinach. Wow. I love it. (laughs) That's right on. I thought you'd like that. A whole bunch of questions have come in, and I want to be sure to get to them. It might cause us to jump around a little bit. One is from Martine in Belgium, and I think you have already kind of covered it. She said, do you remember your existence before this birth? Obviously, you've just been describing it. Was it human or as a being? And maybe you could say a little bit more about that second part, because I've heard you say that fundamentally we're not human beings. We just happen to be those at the moment. But our deeper, more eternal existence is not actually human. Right. So human is something we experience. It's not something that we are. We experience being. It feels like we're it. Who are you really then? You are the you that feels like you to you. (laughs) You are you. You're your consciousness. And that you, when not bound to the limitation of the human experience, is far, far, far more than just these associations that we have while human. Again, we think of everything from our earthly experience as a reference point. So we we see humans and objects and animals and what, what are we? The forms are something that we experience, we entertain. You know, the forms are like the tools and toys of creation. And who is that that uses the tools and toys? You are. The you that feels like you to you is what you really are. So in those other systems, you know, people want to know, oh, you know, do I have a body? What do I look like? What can I do? I try not to speak too much about that because usually it's the ego that wants to know that kind of stuff but also because you just can't put words on realities that are so very different from ours. There are Earth-like thought-responsive reality systems that are very Earth-like, and we can do extremely Earth-like activities, but there are also states of being in which the activities, so to speak, that we're doing are so vastly different than what we can even you know, imagine within the human limitation. 
So if you had been so, a cow in your past life, let's say, obviously you weren't a human being, you were a cow. But for the cow's subjective experience, there's something that feels like you to you, you know, to use your phrase. It feels yeah. like the, the sense of sort of self or something yeah, that they the have. Same self, the same exact, same exact self. I don't have many specific memories of past physical experiences. I do a few. And one of them, I remember, <laughs> sounds pretty wild, <laughs> going out on a bit of a woo-woo branch here, but I remember being a migrating bird. And I remember the stress of flying for ridiculously long distances. And I remember this very spiritual quality of it, but it was also like very dissimilar from human awareness. There was no cognitive power. It was just experiential. That's hard to explain, but that was still the same me. So then when when we return to our higher selves, that's just the term we use, higher self. It's still you. (laughs) When you know the fullness of what you are is a better way of saying higher self. You are the one being who did all these things. It's just like, this is another very crude metaphor, but it's like if on Monday night you went and had dinner, on Tuesday night you went to the movies, and on Wednesday night you played golf, and on Thursday night you took a hike through the woods. Well, were you different people? No. It's the same you. The difference, of course, here is that in this reality, we remember taking, <laughs> doing the things each day of the week, whereas here we specifically veil, become veiled on purpose so that we can have such a very specific, deep, immersive experience of being a human character for a while. But it's still seeing you who does those different things. Kind of reminds me of actors, like they say, for instance, Leonardo DiCaprio gets so into his roles that he stays in yeah. character even when they're not shooting the scene, you know, because he just wants to be so deeply immersed in it. And of course, he doesn't forget yeah. that he's Leonardo DiCaprio, but it's a <laughs> metaphor. It's very much like that. It's kind of like if you see an actor in movies, they play different roles, but there's certain qualities about that actor that always shine through. I feel like Tom Hanks, for instance. Tom Hanks, I think he's a fantastic actor. I love watching Tom Hanks. And he plays very different characters, but it's always Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's kind of how we are as souls. We may play different human personalities for a while, but the real, who we really are, our true, our deeper qualities shine through. We may have qualities that are, that are specific to the local human or limitations, even, you know, biological limitations or whatever else, you know, circumstantial limitations from how we were raised or whatever. But who we really are shines through each of those characters and is persistent from character to character. It's interesting that we're talking about this because last week I interviewed a woman named Eva Natanya, who's a Tibetan Buddhist uh, practitioner and scholar, and we talked a little bit about reincarnation and everything. She was saying that from the the perspective of that tradition, there isn't a discrete being that moves from life to life and just assumes different bodies, that rather there's, it's hard for me to even repeat it because it doesn't jibe with my understanding, but so there's some kind of stream and, and that is not really, there's no person, but there's this sort of stream of karmic tendencies or something that moves from life to life. But that kind of contradicts the, the more Vedic perspective, like in the Bhagavad Gita and all, where they, they talk about like the kind of things you're saying, that you, know, you are a being and, and you move from life to life the way we change clothes in, in this life. And the whole purpose of this sequence of lives is to evolve to higher and higher scales of enlightenment. Yeah, I think they're both true. There's a good number of things that when we talk about them from the earthly perspective, they, two things that are both true can sound paradoxical because we believe in duality. So it's kind of both. We have a discrete experience of being this person and this being and this being, and yet there are karmic, if we want to use that word, energetic themes that run 
from experience to experience, like this fear that I'm here to deal with. It is an energetic theme that I'm engaged with. It's too big for one experience. <laughs> so it runs with me as I, like I'm responsible for it, put it that way. If we are responsible for who we are. I think that's an important point about like this idea of karma. It's not like you're being punished. It's just, you are who you are. And look, now that you went and had this experience, you actualized who you are, maybe in a way that hurt others. And now that you did that, that's part of you too now. Now that that's part of you, oh, now it is best if you can, <laughs> it's into things that are really hard to explain or describe, but now it's best if you can meet that part of yourself that, that would benefit from evolving and evolving through that limitation and growing. And that's why karma is helpful, actually. It's just that you are being led to the places that you, I don't like to use the word need, but that would be best for you to engage. Okay, that's a good explanation. Regarding the veil, I was thinking about that while I was listening to your book, and I was thinking maybe a good metaphor would be, see if you agree with this, if you went to school, for instance, and throughout your schooling, you were just sort of given the answers to all the tests you were going to take, so you didn't actually have to study for them. And you could get very good grades in, in school, but you wouldn't really come out knowing anything. You know, you wouldn't really have done yeah. the work necessary to learn it because you were shown the answers. So it's like if it weren't for this veil, give us some reasons. Maybe that's part of it, but give us some reasons why we do get blinded by this veil when we come into this life and why we don't normally have the kind of memories that you have. And are you at any disadvantage for having these kind of memories compared to okay. the rest of us? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm very veiled. I'm still extremely veiled. Yeah. And I'm very thankful, actually, because it can be very painful to have some of this awareness because it's like then there's a homesickness that accompanies it, which is ridiculously painful. <laughs> So I'm very veiled, and in fact, I have felt called many times to focus physically so that I can deepen my own veil, so I do that. First, I want to make a comment to your point about the knowing the answers to the test. What we're doing here is not an intellectual learning. It's an experiential learning. The goal is not to get 100% on the test when the system already knows the answers to the test. That's not the goal. The goal is to experience being the person who's taking the test and growing as a result of going through the process, not just achieving some end. You know, the experiences themselves are teaching. They are like a language for the soul. Okay, so then the first reason why do we become veiled? Because how would you be a male named Rick who gets up in the morning and has to go to the bathroom and eat your breakfast, worry about your next guest and scheduling it and Maybe your wife said something to you today that you're thinking about, or maybe, you know, whatever. Whatever, all the, all the context. You wouldn't be that perspective if you were the higher perspective. You would be the higher perspective. So the veiling is very additive, actually, because it allows a fresh personality to develop within a specific context that is immersive. The immersiveness of the experience is meaningful for the quality of the experience. Now, can you have an experience that's not immersive? Yes, of course. There are many reality systems that exist where spirits will engage in experiences that are not veiled or maybe less veiled even. But this type of experience is far in the direction of apparent separation. We're not actually separate. <laughs> We're never actually separate from each other or from source. It's not possible. 
but we do have an experiential distance. We've come really far. Like we're, we're push, this universe is like us pushing the boundaries. Like, can we go? Can we take it to this next next level of rigorous separation? Because it is in that contrast is the very value. So one is that allows you to have one reason that we're veiled is it allows you to be the human character. Two, it protects you from homesickness. Because if you remember and knew consciously the beauties of the higher realms and of what you really are, like you wouldn't be going to work in the morning. You know, you'd be, <laughs> it'd be a mess because the reality of that is so, so rich and so beautiful. So these kind of tie in together. Then the third one is it allows you to not get distracted because you're focused completely on, on this. Yeah. So I guess that's the best way I can put it. I do mention a few other ideas the book, but I, I feel like those are the high level. The high, that's the high level explanation, as I understand it. I mean, I'm not claiming to have all the answers. So, part of my pre birth memory that I didn't mention is I remember again, this is going to sound strange. I'm <laughs> just going out on a limb here. But I remember when our universe was to be created. There was this moment when this intent was being issued forth from source, and we were all involved. It was like a big, huge collective, like, yes, next level time. Like, there's this, there's this huge in-breath and out-breath of manifestation of universes, we'll say that way. And, and so we're getting ready for the next level. Like, okay, we're going to take it up a notch, and we're going to go even more deep, rich, separate. So exciting. So exciting that we're going to do this. The level of excitement is just off the charts. Now, I wasn't around. I was, I was doing something else. I don't know what I was doing. I was doing something else at the very beginning. But I remember coming early. And sailing among the stars and just reveling in the idea that we would actually get to be these things, not just people, anything in the universe that we wanted to experience being, and that we would actually be able to like fully immerse and have those perspectives. And that was the most exciting, beautiful additive, so additive, such a creatively additive process that we were going to be able to participate in that. And the veil is required for that. <laughs> so it's kind of a long, long-winded answer. And I remember knowing that was important. Two questions. One is, do you feel that everything that everybody experiences, small or large, is sort of intelligently orchestrated to provide some opportunity for evolution? Nothing is trivial or random. Everything is pregnant with possibility. Everything is pregnant with possibility. I'm careful to say that it's all intelligently orchestrated. There is a great intelligence who has orchestrated the novel simulation, and it knows everything. But I'm saying it that way because there's a novelty to the human experience. And what I mean is unanticipated outcomes can happen. You know, like we're all making free will choices. And so because of that, there is such a thing as, oh, that wasn't anticipated. Look, now that's exciting. Now we're going to deal with this new circumstance that we didn't, wow, we didn't even think that could happen maybe, but now it's happening. That's part of the creative power. And it is every one of those experiences full of possibility? Oh, absolutely. Every experience, every breath, every second lends to evolution and towards the integration of that experience into the expansion of what is. If you think about all that is with a capital A-T-I, you know, all that is, what is, all that is becomes more when new things can happen. And so everything that happens within it tends to lead towards more. And that is a beautiful thing. Second question. 
when you were talking about being around at the start of the universe, do you feel that our individual souls are eternal, or do they somehow come into being at some point in time and perhaps as little tiny seed souls that get to be butterflies or something, and then they evolve up and occupy more and more complex life forms? Okay, I think it's both. The soul is eternal. It's a, okay, so the ocean of the whole is what is. It's eternal. <laughs> and the soul is the, like a, metaphorically like a drop in the ocean that has been made sovereign and free will. But to limit the journey of the soul to some kind of physical incarnation cycle is an inappropriate limitation. Because the soul can and does engage in many, many other types of experience and evolution that are not based on a physical incarnation cycle process. Physical incarnation cycle is just one highly specialized, very potent possibility. But the original question, it is both that the soul is eternal and also there is, these are topics that any language will immediately fall short, incredibly fall short. But I do feel it is simultaneously eternal and that it's like, like I think you said a seed, you know, like planting a new seed. There is, there is a seed of possibility that is born from the substance of what is and then that seed goes on on its own journey to evolve in its own way. You know, it has its own free will choices and its own ability to choose and grow. And that is what's additive about it, <laughs> is that that individual piece of the whole gets to make its own choices, go through its own growth, and add to what is by doing that. The Hindus, at least some of them, believe that, that the universe is cyclical, you know, that we, we have a universe and at some point it collapses down and then we don't have one. There's a period of rest, which they call pralaya, and then eventually another universe comes out. But they say that all the beings in the universe actually go into that rest state at the time of the dissolution, and then the very same beings come out again and resume whatever level of evolution they had when they went in and pick it up from there. That sounds appropriate to me with the memory I'm describing about the creation of this universe. It was, it was a period of a deep rest. And then there was the creation of this new, like a simulation. I can't speak to what we were doing or anything. I mean, it's just, this is so beyond language now. But as a basic metaphor, I think that's about right. And so obviously you're on board with the notion of free will. Well, yeah. it kind of sounds like, well, the, the play is scripted, but there's plenty of room for improvisation. No, the play's not scripted. It's just... The system knows us really well. Well, like you said, you before you came mm -hmm. into this life, there was a great deal of planning and like a big yeah, so database with branches and all possibilities. Yeah, that's not a script, though. That is a prediction about how it probably will go. But it's not scripted. Scripted to me means pre-established. It's not pre-established. Free will happens. It's just that, as Tom Campbell puts it, the system has all the data. <laughs> And it knows all your history. It knows your choice-making and the choice-making of everybody else. And importantly, there are energetic themes that not only the individual is going through, but the, okay, so in a given simulation like on Earth, the human collective consciousness goes through eras, shall we say, energetic eras, where it explores a broad theme and then moves on and explores another broad theme. I'm generalizing, but it's, I'm just saying that there are these kind of seasons energetically that occur within a given place or a group. And so the system then knows that that's happening and that that is the general direction. And those are the energy. 
this word is general, but the, the energies at work, as those are the energies at work. So it can predict very well what is likely to transpire once the free-willed participants are let loose <laughs> within the context. Like the context is known. Everything about the context is known. Every detail about the context is known. The only thing that's not, and, and then the decision-making that will be made is anticipated, but yet free. I interviewed a, a guy named Rob Schwartz, and one of the things he says is, feel free to disagree with him. He wouldn't be offended. But one of the things he says is that the major events of our life are kind of not predetermined, but we kind of like review them before we're born. They, All right, well, I'm going to get hit by a car or marry this person or you know get this disease or whatever. But then once we get into the life, then there can be all kinds of fine tunings and changes in and even changes in plan i mean and perhaps if if we work out the karma for getting hit by the car then we'll just stub our toe instead or something like that but there are certain major things that are set up in advance even things like i'm going to be a murderer or an abuser or something we we agree to take a certain role because it might serve some kind of karmic purpose even though it, it would be seen as very odious so in my pre-birth experience, I set I okay. So I knew that it was extremely likely that I would suffer a trauma in my early twenties <laughs> that would crush me and allow me to re-engage this fear. And indeed, that was that was inter- integral to my purpose. So that was in a sense pre-established. So when I say free will, I don't mean free will to choose any choice in the entire universe. Once you're here, you have to choose within. You have to follow the rules. You've got to choose things within the. Contact. But you have wiggle so room. In, yeah, you make choices from what's available to you to make choices. From. And what you know you can make choices. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of choices available to them that they don't see. You know, that's quite normal, too. So as an example, in this case, I knew that this body has a physical limitation that other bodies don't. And that many spirits would pass it up, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but for my purposes, I knew it was very helpful because it would cause a day-to-day discomfort in my experience that would pressure my ego. It would make sure that I did not become an egoic monster <laughs> because I would suffer. And I knew that was helpful, actually. So now that I'm here, I have the ability to choose what I'm going to do within my decision space. That's Tom Campbell's term, decision space. But I still have this limitation in my body, and that was known beforehand, just as the trauma that I would very likely experience was known beforehand. So I don't see any disagreement with Robert Schwartz's. I read a part of one of his books. I thought it was very interesting. I don't really see a disagreement with that from what I experienced. And I can only speak to what I experienced. I have not, you know, as Robert's interviewed many pre-birth experiences. I, you know, I don't have that kind of research under my belt. I just know what I reviewed before I came here. Okay, good. Incidentally, I've interviewed um, this Tom Campbell you keep referring to, and people can find that on BatGap, and there's a lot of other stuff of his online. He wrote a book called My Big Toe. Toe stands for Theory of Everything, and he's a very interesting guy. Let me get to some more of these questions. So here's one from Mick Cush in Oregon. On the other side, are there parallels to the organizing principles behind earthly society? Here we have external forms of government and social institutions that regulate and harmonize life, all held together by many roles and functions that must be fulfilled, as otherwise we'd live in anarchy. Any idea how beings that aggregate together on the other side organize and collaborate on a large scale? Um, So I can only speak to what I remember. I will say that there are many different systems of reality. So 
what happens in those realities is highly dependent on the rule set of those realities, how things work there. In most realities, there is a sharing of being that is telepathic and complete. And so that alone changes very much how things happen. <laughs> you know, because here on Earth, we have an incredible inefficiency in our ability to communicate with each other and organize effectively. You know, just communicating takes us a huge amount of effort. <laughs> Whereas there, there's almost no effort at all. So that affects very much how things happen. I will say just as um, like a general example, and I'm just picking out one specific memory, and I don't know the context of how this one place fits into other places, because like I said, there are many different realities, and they may have different contexts. But I remember that it was very common to basically focus on what you want to focus on, and there's no such thing as being rude if you just leave, because that's not interesting to you anymore. You know, so if there's a group of beings doing some activity and it's not interesting to you, you're not going to hang around and just like be polite. There's no need for that because you're you. You're exactly you. They're exactly them. They know exactly what you're feeling. You know exactly what they're feeling. That's not interesting to you. You go off, do something else. <laughs> you know, that's just a simple example. How in our society, we have a lot of like convention about what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to behave. So I, I don't think I can get more specific than that. I will say, I guess I'll just at least add that there is, like I said, a not an authoritative structure, but there are beings of love and wisdom that guide us and help us. And they know us very well, incredibly well. So there's help in that. And if you want to call that an institution, I mean, I don't know, I probably wouldn't call it an institution, but there are guides. There are many guides at work right now, actually, in fact, within just our earth system, many non-physical guides that, uh, that work with us and help us. I won't try to speak to any kind of institutions or anything like that yeah. here, though. I know some of the ancient traditions like the, you know, the Tao Te Ching, for instance, talk about how the more enlightened a society is, the simpler a government can be or the, the less government it needs. So I imagine that uh, these higher realms, however they are governed or organized, it's a far cry from the United States Congress. <laughs> yes, I would say that's probably true. <laughs> it's not even a comparison. <laughs> Here's a question from uh, Lisa Teasley in Los Angeles. How does your work as a project manager for complex nuclear pump and valve manufacturing products contribute to the evolving of your soul as well as evolve your relationship with the earth? That's a good question. I recently lost that position. I, for 16 years, I was a project manager for nuclear valve and pump projects. <laughs> My company closed the facility I was working at, so I'm currently in between jobs. But to speak to your question... I need to play the human role like we all do. I seek to do the best I can for my family, which includes earning a living. But I also feel that presence can be brought into any role. And so it's not just a matter of doing one thing or the other. There is a possibility to be present and to bring a quality of awareness into any context. So I seek to do that. I don't know what future work I will end up doing. I'm open to whatever happens. <laughs> As for the earth, I don't know if we want to get into a conversation about nuclear power. I personally feel nuclear power is quite safe, <laughs> not, not bad for the earth. In fact, I feel it's a good alternative. That's just my opinion just because I've worked in it. Well, but yeah, I don't well, know we have had Chernobyl and Fukushima and Three Mile Island, but you know, which are extremely problematic to say the least, but perhaps yeah, more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't discount. I don't discount. I don't discount those happening. That's true. Yeah. Fukushima was quite a disaster. It still is. But, you know, I have heard, we don't go off on this tangent, but I have heard of potential nuclear technologies that would actually use up 
you know, all the waste fuel that we now know, don't know how to store and that could be very safe and so on. So maybe something like that will come along. I don't feel strongly about that topic. I'll just say that it's not like, it's more that I have, I play the human role as we all do. And I, you know, I'm hoping to succeed for my family. And I did it in a way that I don't think there was any harm, at least in that, fulfilling that role as a project manager in nuclear. Okay, good. This one is from Jill in California. Since we are all part of the one, how did it come about that some souls get more evolved than others? Did we not all start out at the same level? Perfect? Well, we are perfect. This is uh, something that sounds like a paradox. I like your use of paradox, by the way. You keep bringing up paradoxes in your book. And uh, I really like the way you do it because somebody actually sent me a T-shirt that had paradox on it because I've said so many times that I really appreciate that word. Well, this is a good example of a paradox. Are we perfect or are we evolving? And the answer is both. The substance of the soul is perfect. How it actualizes within manifest experience is evolving. So when the soul, I don't want to use the word begins, because again, we transcend linear time, but the soul needs to make its own choices and grow and evolve in its own way. And that is the rubber meets the road value. You could say that we work in evolution towards the perfection of the whole. And the whole itself is ever refining also. Now, I don't want to say source is imperfect. That's not true either. <laughs> but it is ever refining. There is a never-ending process of evolution that is taking place, which is constantly adding to the joy and the love and the creative manifestation of what is. And you and I are participating in that process now. And being able to be you in the rich context of this life and actually make the hard choices, that is where the rubber meets the road for that very real growth. This is a real system. <laughs> it's, a real, it's a real thing. So it has to make real choices in real environments that, are, that could be real difficult at times. There's a British friend of mine, philosopher named Tim Freak, who's been on Backgap a few times. And uh, he has this belief that somehow, that God is somehow coming into existence as the universe comes into existence. And St. Teresa of Avila, in fact, said it appears that God himself is on the journey. But I kind of argue that, well, to even have a universe, you'd have to have all the laws of nature that give rise to it in some kind of latent form, you know, within the unmanifest field from which it arises. And yes. they'd have to sort of be able to function perfectly as they emerge, or the universe wouldn't be able to emerge. Then there's this fine-tuning argument that people, intelligent design people use, that, or people like Robert Lanza, biocentrism, that there are so many variables that have to be just right, or we wouldn't either have a universe, or we wouldn't have a universe with any life in it, and so on. So, um, yeah. I don't know. Can you riff on those ideas that I just brought out? So you're talking about what Tam Campbell calls the rule set uh -huh. for the reality. So that is, you know, if you imagine you create a video game and you create rules, how does the game work? Well, Source has had a heck of a lot of experience <laughs> over many, 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 many iterations of experience. So it very much knows and understands what works. Of course, it's going to set the rules in such a way that there can be evolution. And so once it is initiated, then free will participants apply themselves within the context, the context being the rule set now that we have to work with. That's our physics. 
And now we choose. Now that now we now we play biological creatures. Now how do we do? What are we doing today? You know, we're having this conversation over the video. Now we're, <laughs> you know, now we're choosing how to actualize here through the physical. And this physical maintains and sustains and continues to operate because of the rules that have been set forth for it. But it's just like Tom says, it's like a virtual environment. That's just the way it was made. And it evolves as we evolve because they, it, it gets kind of let loose, set loose, and then it transpires. Manifestation happens, evolution happens, and it's a beautiful process, a rather huge, beautiful process. So are you saying that source is this vast repository of knowledge and experience and data or whatever we want to call it, and that it actually, despite how vast it is, is continuing to evolve and are you further saying that the universe itself is, or universes perhaps, are the means through which it evolves? You know, there's that saying, I am one, may I become many, or is the becoming many a way that this source actually becomes even more than it already is? And so the entire yes. shebang is like this huge evolving thing. Yes, Though I don't want to pigeonhole the purpose of physical creation just to that and say, you know, source has to evolve, so it's going to do this thing. It's not about need. It's about love, love joy. and evolutionary. Yeah, so evolution continually is happening because joy and love are good <laughs> to know and to experience. And so what I'm saying is evolution through manifest creation is an expansion of love and joy. The, the ability to make choices within this context to be these characters and to make these beautiful choices every day through all of our contexts is a beautiful process that adds to love and joy ultimately. And that happens through us, through the individuals who are part of the one. So yes, that is true. Now it's also, we're just in, also incredibly creative. <laughs> like as spiritual beings, we are just so powerfully creative that we also really just enjoy seeing what we can do. Like there's like a curiosity element to it almost like a very simple, beautiful creativity, uh, a curiosity to see how creative we can be in this kind of a way. And that is also a part of why there's so much manifest creation. Like I said, the forms of our lives are like the tools and toys, you know, of spirit, of consciousness. And this is just an example of, wow, can we really do this? Can we really take it to this extreme separation and get super dense? Let's try it. And there are many beings who won't risk, won't, I don't want to use the word risk, but won't choose to have this kind of, <laughs> this level of separation. But those of us here who are human are the ones brave enough to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, well, yeah, we're creative. Yeah. And, it, and it said that, you know, man is created in the image of God. But when you look at God's creation, it's a heck of a lot more creative than we are. You look at a, anything, look at a, a fly's wing or a, a single cell, and you look at how incredibly vastly complex it is, far beyond our understanding even, and then think of the entire universe going out for, in all directions just with the same level of intelligent create and creativity functional Anywhere you look throughout the whole vast yes. thing, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling to the human mind that thinks in one thing at a time and is very small-focused. But to the spirit, it's all... Yeah. It's all in a day's work. Something like that, yeah. It's something like all in a day's work. This is what we are. You know, We are incredibly creative, vast beings. 
and that's just this universe you're pointing at. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm being kind of cryptic when I keep referencing other reality systems, but that's just this place, you know, and uh, it's, it's much bigger than that. And, you know, we could think of that two ways, maybe like bubble universes just scattered all around like bubbles in ginger ale. Or there's also like certain traditions talk of like different levels, like the Vedic tradition huh. speaks of like seven levels of heaven and seven levels of hell and so on. So there's just all these other dimensions that are just on different wavelengths. Yeah, so there's a point that I think is worth mentioning there, and that is that, and I know this is going to sound very strange. You keep saying that. But <laughs> I, I keep saying it because I know how these things sound like to the mainstream person. But well, this isn't the mainstream audience. Probably not. <laughs> the physical universe is taking place within us, not the other way around. In these no, days. yeah, perfect. It feels like you are in a body. No, the body is an experience happening within you. What you, the body of your awareness that feels that it's alive right now, that living field of awareness, that living presence, the body is happening on and in it. In fact, the entire physical experience is happening on and in it, just as it is happening on and in the consciousness of every other participant as well. So that's really what it is, is a shared virtual experience taking place on pre-existing consciousness. It's not that your consciousness is stuck in some kind of a real object called a body. So then if there's all these other realities, they also take place within consciousness. They're also within you. You can't actually be separated from them because there is no separation. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because as we were talking about bodies evolving through various lifetimes and so on, you know, I could sort of hear people saying, yeah, but, you know, what about the universal self? And you're just talking about the individual self. And so it's one of those paradox things where on the one hand, our individual expression evolves, but then unbounded awareness, which is what we ultimately are, actually contains everything and, and so on. Uh, more questions. So a lot of great questions coming in today. I want to keep moving so I don't miss any. Sharon Ritter from Maine said that one afterlife expert, in quotes, told me that not all angels and spirits believe the same thing. Is this true? Are there various beliefs and perspectives even in the heavenly realms? Okay, so we like to bucket the whole afterlife into like one bucket. You know, we tend to be like there's earth and then there's the other side. How is it over there? Well, it's a little bit like throwing every earth location into one place. <laughs> earth has a lot of different locations. It's true. Our physical universe has a lot of different locations. Other universes have a lot of different locations. So I'm just saying that in the context of the question because it depends on the state of being at which is happening in a given reality. But in realities where there are personalities walking around with manifest experience, maybe not literally walking, but when there are beings that are there with manifest experience, yes, of course, they have unique experiences. They have unique perspectives. They are unique. Where there is uniqueness, there will be a difference in perspective. That's quite natural. Now, that doesn't mean that there will be disagreement necessarily because in those states, we tend to be able to share all of what we are, all of our perspective with the other, and it's just seen. And actually, it's a really beautiful, wonderful, even blissful process to share your perspective with someone else and to feel their perspective and their history. And you share who you are, and they share who they are, and wow, it's amazing. And so there's multiple perspectives that can coexist. That's something that we don't typically experience on Earth. <laughs> Here's one from Akshay in Pune, India. 
When does spiritual experience occur? Does deep understanding lead to experience? Or perhaps it is not in our hands to bring about this experience. And if I make an effort, is that not the ego? Okay. This is going to sound like a cop-out, but I just this is important. There's no such thing as an experience that's not spiritual. It's all spiritual. Every single thing is made of consciousness. Everything is happening within consciousness, by consciousness, of consciousness. So then what happens is, though, we experience being separate, and the separate self operates through an ego. And so when it grips onto that ego and it's trying super hard, that tends to actually create more of a distance, even though there's, there's not actually a distance, but it tends to create more of a perceptual distance. Because now we're deeply associated with this need, this, oh, well, I'm separate, so now i got to find this answer. So if we let go and we look at what is already there with no need, no need. There's no, uh, there's no requirement on you. There's no stress. It's already there. So does that mean it's something you can go do? No. I mean, I, I agree that as the separate self, you can't sit down and go do it. I can't go sit down and meditate and make myself have an out-of-body experience. That's not how it works because that's my separate self. I'm, that's not how it works. But if one is willing to fully be alert and to feel everything and to be fully present with reality, those larger parts of ourselves can rise up all on their own. And then they're just there. They always were there. It's just we were so deeply associated with the story that we couldn't see them. So what's the activity I can do? What can I do? It's not really an activity, but if you want to name one, it's meditation. Because meditation is simply setting aside the time to investigate very objectively, you know, rigorously. Go look. Go look at your awareness. Go explore what consciousness is when not lost in the story, not associated with the constant thinking when someone can know what they are without the thinking the thinking is like uh, like dreams thoughts are like dreams we associate with this thought and this thought and our whole the whole day you know i'm thinking this i'm thinking this i'm thinking this and by the time the day's done we had about a thousand dreams <laughs> all these individual thoughts it's all i am and we hurt and we're suffering because we're associating with all these thoughts well it can be then beneficial to spend time associating with the deeper awareness that knows the thoughts because if we do that all on its own, our higher nature can just kind of gradually rise up and we gain experiential familiarity that we are not our thoughts. And there is an incredible, an incredible freedom in that. So I don't know if I spoke to the question successfully, but... It sounded good. Better answer than I would have come up with. Also, uh, I would say that if you do a practice of meditation, it's an effective one, then the... Um, Impressiveness of your thoughts diminishes over time. You know, they become firstly less cluttered, less frequent, because usually the mind is full of all kinds of chaotic static that doesn't really serve any purpose. So all that stuff goes away. But then also thoughts are not so gripping and dominating as they might once have been. And if an inappropriate thought comes up, it's possible to kind of nip it in the bud or catch it near the source from which it arises and not have it carry you off on, a, on an undesirable tangent. Exactly. Okay, here's a question from um, Wesley Morton in Oregon. I sometimes wonder if the Earth is a prison planet. The energy is so dense with so much darkness. So many people are living hard lives. Australia was initially colonized with British prisoners and social outcasts. Is the earth analogous? Is this a dimension where outcast beings get sent to do hard time? I feel the answer is no. What's interesting about the earth experience is that we get to apply the meaning. 
So if we see a world that is trapped, we see examples of that trappedness in our own history, Australia, for example, we tend to then impose that interpretation on the experience. And then we wonder, am I understanding that correctly? Because we've interpreted it that way because of what we've seen, our own perceptions and our own pain. But that is a, um, I'm not discounting that perspective. I'm just saying that is a a rather duality-focused idea. It's kind of earth-learned, and who we are transcends that duality. Uh, Typically, when a spiritual idea is, I recently heard this idea that don't go into the light because reptilians are using us to reincarnate over and over, and they're siphoning our energy off. You know, I've heard that a few times. That's another example, I feel, of, well, we see a world of, duality and struggle. So we then interpret it and then impose that interpretation higher up. We think that's the way reality is, so the higher reality must be that way too. No, the higher reality is based in total freedom and love and joy. And uh, we tend to take the pain, painful interpretation that we've bought into and impose it up the ladder, (laughs) so to speak. So the good news is we are actually free to apply the interpretation and to reevaluate it. So that's a really key point. It sounds maybe not so important, but it's very important that we have the ability to apply the interpretation onto this. This experience is super dense, super low vibration by comparison, but it also is neutral, Earth experience. We, out of our fear, apply so much negative fear-based interpretation because we have yet to evolve to integrate all of it. It's just high, high contrast, but neutral. Yeah. And what you've been saying is that living in a dense dimension, a dense planet, is not a punishment. It's an opportunity. That's why you came here. That's why we come here, because there's something that can be achieved here that can't be achieved just by hanging out on the other side. I guess just to put a a lid on that, the whole purpose of our existence is evolution, to continue to evolve to higher and higher levels of evolution. And if we could do that by remaining as angels or spirits in some kind of heavenly realm, we would probably do that. But we obviously can't because we don't. It's fair to say the purpose of what we're doing here is evolution. That's okay. But in the context of what you're saying, I I would actually take it a step down even one step further, which is the purpose is love. Evolution is just what happens when love and joy express and grow through choice. You know, so love is really why. It's really about love. Love is the real reason. Love is our purpose and our reason, and it is the power. <laughs> Evolution is a more neutral term of the, you know, the process of us growing and evolving. And that, I mean, it, it's happening. So I'm not discounting that. I just want to point that out. Perhaps we could define evolution as the process through which we become capable of expressing more love. We become conduits for greater and greater amounts of love that we can sort of infuse into the world. I agree with that. It is simultaneously what we already are, and it is something that grows and refines as we integrate manifest experience. Sure. If we already are that, fine. But if we can't, if it's not a living reality, if it's not something that we can experience while engaged Let's take it a step back. I mean, why did the universe manifest in the first place? Wasn't it just sufficient to just be unmanifest and just chilling all on its own, the source? I think perhaps there's something to be gained in having it become a living reality, some kind of expansion of happiness, expansion of love, which just wouldn't happen otherwise. 
Yes. It's an expansion of what is, an expansion of all that is. And we do that because we are immortal, loving, creative, powerful beings who are going to do even that. You know, like we are so loved and so free that we'll even come and be human to integrate this level of contrast. I'll even go to a place where I'm going to get so grumpy and upset because this world hurts so much and I'm going to wail and rage for 80 years. We're so loved that we are, we are able to make that choice. And it's so very important then that while we're here, we do make loving choices now that we're here because we came all this way. It's like that quote you read. It's like a waste of a precious opportunity. If we, if we can't make this place better, bring love to each other and to the world, and grow in the love of what we are, then that's, that's a loss. But if we can do that, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful because that's what we are. It's all about love. It's all about love in even the small ways. It doesn't need to be a big, huge, like, you know, I moved three mountains and made a million dollars. I mean, it's nothing about that. It's the smallest act of love is unto itself, unto itself worthy for the whole universe, for the whole universe. Like one act of love, almost like, like the whole universe celebrates and is celebrated when there is one true loving act. Just one. It's beautiful. In your book, I heard you discuss people who do bad things when they're on Earth and then what happens when they die and so on and so forth. Then we don't have to dwell on the horrible things people do. We hear them on the news every day. But in your understanding, what awaits those people when they drop the body? Is they cross over to the other side and get a pat on the back? Hey, great lifetime. Or is there some kind of retribution or learning or something they have to do to atone or to learn so as not to do that kind of thing again or what yeah so there are two very important points that are simultaneously true and once again this might sound like a paradox but these two things are 100 percent true both of them first is we are unconditionally accepted and loved unconditionally loved and accepted no matter what that's the first thing the second thing is, and this is also 100% true, we are completely responsible, 100% responsible for every single thing we have done, every thought, every intent, every bit of energy that we wielded. There's like an energetic accountability of who we are because it's a part of us. And so sometimes we call that karma, you know, it's like a general word. But the idea is you don't escape who you are and who you've been. And so what that will mean for any given person is very unique and very personal. But if someone leads a very fear-driven life and hurts many others, that is not something that they just escape. Now that's what they are. Now they need to deal with that. <laughs> so in my case, in the life where I died an agonizing death, I was a very not helpful person. I was a very hurtful person. In this life, I have experienced a great deal of suffering. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a punishment. It's just I have that much fear. <laughs> I have that much fear, and fear hurts. But even that is an opportunity. You see, this whole system is built within a bedrock of unconditional love, which furthers the growth of love. So even that ultimately serves the expansion of love. There's no such thing as, like, fear has true power, and, you know, now you're screwed. No. It's all within love. It's just that we benefit from being energetically accountable is the only word I can think of 
to what we have been and how we have affected others. So that can mean future experiences that could potentially be very painful, whether in a non-physical environment or whether in another physical environment, not as a punishment, but as a process that is a part of our experiential growth. Yes, and certainly not any kind of eternal hell or anything like that. I, I doubt that you would say that, no. that either hell or heaven, although they may exist, are eternal. Well, there's no such thing as an eternal hell. Absolutely not. That is a super good example of how on earth we like to take the extremes of duality and see how far we can take them. (laughs) (laughs) And now millions of people believe in eternal punishment. Like, holy cow, can we think of something more terrible? The limits of our creativity are such that we will even come to an experience like earth where we can try to perceptually like get our heads around the idea of eternal punishment. Like, wow, like we'll even consider that idea. That's how bold we are in our expansion. But as for heaven being eternal, so it depends on what you mean by the word heaven, but I will simply say that our true nature is bliss and joy and freedom, and it is eternal. I think how I would distinguish here is is that there's said to be a sort of a very, very subtle relative realm that's celestial and and heavenly, and that there are worlds comprised of that that one could dwell in. But since they are relative, they are not eternal but then the self to which you allude the the brahman or you know the supreme self that is beyond the celestial it's absolute and therefore doesn't come and go and we all we we are that always yeah i agree with that exactly that the eternal self can engage in temporary any experience that is a manifest experience is limited by definition because it's manifest so it's not forever because that's not what manifest means. It's <laughs> not what limited means. Good. Here's an interesting question from Rob in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Any knowledge about different types of earthly veils? Do we all, regardless of our life's path, have access to our higher self? Or are there paths where the veil is so thick that any attempt to seek is severely muted to suit the incarnation purpose? Yeah, that's a really good question. I can't say with certainty, but I know that with what I felt in my pre-birth experience, that I know the veil is organic and unique to the individual, and it does suit the incarnation purpose. So that to me implies, at least, that a veil could be thicker or thicker or thinner. It's just pretty crude language, but it implies to me, at least, that a veil could be purposefully thicker or thinner. In this case, I asked to have a very small amount of memory, and I, and I did. That was intentional. They told me it would make this life even more difficult if I did that, had a small amount of memory. And I, but I knew that even that contrast was an opportunity for growth. So I imagine that in some instances, perhaps even a, a more rigorous veil would even be helpful, <laughs> potentially. But I, I don't know for certain. I just know that the, so the veil is not, it's not just like a hard rule. It is a personal, organic thing. And the depth to which we associate with the stories of our life is the depth to which we're veiled. So children, you know, they come in, they're not super associated with any stories yet. So their veil is quite permeable. (laughs) You know, they'll come and go pretty commonly. But then as they get older and as they learn their identity and as they, you know what I mean, they get older and then eventually it's like, oh, this is all there is. And by the time you get to be an adult or an elderly person, you get a whole lifetime of associating with certain earthly ideas and thoughts and stories. 
that makes the veil, the experience, as thicker because that's the nature of it. The, the more we associate with it, the, the deeper it feels. But is it ever like fundamentally obscuring us? No, 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 no. Our true nature is always what it is. And so the veil can only obscure. It can't actually change what we are. The fact that you're listening right now and you're conscious means that you exist beyond the veil. Because consciousness is already connected to all things. You are, are already your higher self too. The higher self is not someone else. It's you. Here's a question from Suzanne Stroud in Sugarland. I guess that's Texas. I think there's a place in Texas called Sugarland. In your experience, how can we become more consciously aware of our connection to God or the universe? That question is incredibly personal. It's very difficult to speak to. Personal meaning it's different for different people? Because each soul... Okay. Like, I know when we look around at each other, we see a bunch of humans that all look kind of the same. And, you know, we're all kind of like male or female and living our lives and eating food and all that. The souls, every soul is so unique. Every one of us is so incredibly unique. That, and then we've converged into this kind of a shared experience. So I say that in the context of the question, because the soul is so unique and because our experience is so personal, each person's experience with the divine is very unique. And personal. And it's important that we honor that process. I have a short section in the book where I try to like give some general points to consider about that, but I'll just make a couple points. One, follow your intuition because the deeper parts of you know, like you know, <laughs> whether or not you're willing to look at your own crap enough to see what's actually blocking you from the love and joy of who you really are. That's, that's another matter. But if, if you're willing to actually look and, and listen to your intuition, it's, there is guidance there. We're always being guided not only by ourselves, but by our non-physical friends and you know, by spirit in general. I'll just mention meditation again, because as you mentioned before, Rick, about how meditation helps you not associate so firmly with these dense thoughts. They come less, and then it's less of an oppressive grip with each thought that is a move towards what you really are when you lessen that grip. Because now you're not as tightly grabbing onto the story, you're letting go. And as you let go, what you really are is able to just rise up to the surface on its own and be known. Uh, what you really are is divine always. And um, so that process can be very personal, but I found it helpful to there's one thing that Tom Campbell said in one of his videos that like at the moment, this is like 10 years ago, but really helped me when he said this one sentence. He said, you are already on the other side of the veil right now. I'm like, what the heck? Really? Like, what? I am? Like, wait, I don't see that. It doesn't look like. But with that in mind, when I meditated, I really became aware that in, indeed I wasn't actually here. Our own assumptions can keep us separated. You know, we believe so much in distance. We believe so much in, I'm this, I'm, this is my name, and this is my job, and this is who I am. If we are willing to let go of that and be fully present with exactly what the present moment is, we're not making anything up. You don't need to make up any stories. You don't need new thoughts. You don't need a new belief. Go experience what is your living awareness right now. I think that can be really helpful as one seeks to then experientially find the divine part of themselves. I think the most important thing that I can say is whoever's listening today, I want to remind you that you are so deeply loved. It's not just a faraway fairy tale thing. It's not just a religious belief. There is such a profound universe shattering love for you specifically. 
And I know we feel veiled from that, but please, please be reminded of that and maybe even feel some of it within you today. We are not the fearful stories of our lives. We're not. You know, we get wrapped up in, in these deep roles. I know it's very deep. It's very convincing. We did it. This is a heck of a thing we got going on here in the physical. But it's not really what we are. So we all have permission, not from anybody else, just within yourself. You just have it because you're you to let go of the fear and to feel everything within you and to meet reality with openness and acceptance and joy. That's what we are. So if we can even do that a little bit, we will have come a long way. <laughs> do you yourself meditate in some form every day? Yeah, I do try to meditate every day. I feel I have periods of time where I feel more deeply called to meditate or not. I can feel if I don't meditate for a while, I, I become very physically oriented again. You know, and I become lost in the human personality stories again. But I have this little sticky note above my desk that when I was in an experience where I knew it, I wrote to myself, it is an illusion. I taped it above my desk. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've looked up at that and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's an illusion. I forgot again. That's the way it is. But yeah, I do try to meditate every day to help, to help that awareness. I mean, there's actually nothing more fun, in my opinion, because there's so much joy in just the aliveness that we are. It's wonderful. I don't always find it as easily, but I do, I do feel it's important to do every day if, if possible. Yeah, I agree. And it certainly helped me. I just mention it because I can't imagine in my own experience, having gone through life without a practice like that, I don't know where I would have ended up. I was already dropped out of high school and arrested a couple of times and stuff by the time I learned. And I don't think I would have lived that long. But when you mentioned people going through tough times, you know, I, th I think, well, you definitely need an element in your life that gives you access to that inner reality, whatever you can do to connect with yes. it, because it's it's there. And it's like, somebody begging on the street, you know, and starving and so on. And yet they've actually won the lottery, but they don't realize it, you know, and they've got the lottery ticket in, you know, in a sock drawer or something, and they're still begging. And we've all got that lottery ticket and you, you can cash it in, but you just have to go through some steps. I, I love what you're saying. It reminds me of the, this is one of my favorite quotes. It's a roomy quote, something to the effect of, we go from room to room searching for the diamond necklace that is already around our neck. So I mentioned meditation, but I, I want to confirm what you just said, at least from my own perspective, that yeah, whatever form it takes for the individual is good, is important, because we are in a world of form right now. Not everybody benefits to going straight, <laughs> straight towards formless awareness. Religion has a great place for many people. So if there is a practice or a discipline or a learning, a teaching that is helpful, then absolutely follow, follow your intuition. You know, there's different forms that work for different people at different times, and that's fine. That's wonderful. It's a, it's, it's a good process. Sure. And that gap is kind of a testament to that. I mean, it's like a smorgasbord of all these different people who followed all these different paths and uh, arrived at something, you know, gotten some benefit from it. So, yeah, you know, I, oh, man, I agree with that. Your show is amazing. I, I've really respected your work. I told you this <laughs> before we started talking, but I'll just say it publicly that I, I feel that you're doing amazing work. It's very helpful for people to consider these kind of perspectives because this, this doesn't need to be a religiously charged conversation. It, these things are real. 
And so to be able to approach it in an, you know, in an intellectual way and evaluate it, you know, carefully and openly without any kind of dogmatic charge is a, is a big service. I mean, I think Earth's going through this awakening right now and your work is helping. You're a part of that. Oh, a little part of it. Yeah, we're all holding up our sticks. But like you say, it's not a religious thing. It, nobody really has to believe in anything in particular. You can just sort of take it as a hypothesis that maybe some of the stuff these guys are saying is true and let me see if it is. Let me explore a little bit and see if I begin to experience some verification exactly. of what they're saying. If I don't, then you know, no big deal. But if I do, it could be extremely valuable. Exactly. I feel strongly in that way, too. It's not about getting a new belief or something. It's like, okay, go find out. Is there any merit to this? And if this kind of conversation does not resonate with your reason, discard it. <laughs> it's okay. You know, follow your reason and follow your intuition both. Uh, reminds me of a quote from the Buddha. He said, don't believe anything because anybody says it. He said, even if I say it, the Buddha, work it out for yourself and go by your own understanding your own experience and you know prove it or disprove it but you know don't take it on faith exactly good well i guess that's a good enough note to end on all right well thanks so much christian i knew i was going to enjoy talking to you i certainly enjoyed listening to you many hours by listening to this book and uh, i'll have a link to it on your page on batgap.com people can hop over to amazon and get it if they want to the book is available for free too. It's oh. not. It's definitely not about money. Uh -huh. It's all on Google Books. You just if you go to my website, awalkinthephysical.com, go to the books page. The third link down is a link to the Google Books entry. Just click read for free, and it's all there. Make sure I have that link too. I can put it on your Batgap page. Can you download it there, or do you have no, it, you it, have it, to just it watch it on your screen? It's all, you can read it on your screen. Like yeah, okay, yeah, great. You can read it on. Screen. Oh wait a minute! One more question came in from Sammy. Let's read this. This is from Sammy in Aurora. Could mean Aurora, Illinois. I don't know. How has this awareness affected your closest relationships? Yeah, that's a good question. It can be very difficult because you see that a lot of relationships are built on a story. I actually have some rather conservative in-laws, so it has affected you know, my family <laughs> in that way. That's one of my own personal you know, challenges. You're the wacko son-in-law, um, huh? I am. That's how I'm perceived. That's okay. There is no um, need or room for fake relationships very much anymore because it's just it's not necessary. So some relationships can fall away very easily, but others can arise even with what we would call complete strangers that are very deep. I meet people that I just can't believe the beauty in, of some of these people and the quality of those relationships is really important. And I feel like I'm learning so much. I feel like I'm just at the very beginning. I'm like a newbie student. And there's so many of these people out there I have so much to learn from. So I really love being able to have those genuine relationships where I can like, oh my gosh, there's so many masters out there. I'll put it, <laughs> I'll put it that way. There's so many people out there who have mastered certain things. And it's beautiful to be able to like see past the crap and actually try to you know, engage with those people in that way. It's just a really cool thing. A lot of spiritual traditions place great emphasis on the importance of the company you keep. They say that if, if you hang out with the wrong crowd, so to speak, it's going to uh, be an impediment to your spiritual evolution. So they, they really advocate associating with the wise, associating with people who have the kind of values you, you aspire to. 
Uh, I know in my own case, when I first learned to meditate, all my friends were taking drugs and, and so on and not really going anywhere. And it wasn't a big, hard decision. I just kind of gravitated away from them. And for quite a few months, I just hung out with the dog and took walks every day, you know, down to the yeah. down to the beach. And uh, after a while, of course, I accumulated new friends and a whole new life. But I've actually spoken to people who say, well, I don't want to get too spiritual because I don't want to lose my friends. You know, I want to stay on their wavelength. I relate to what you're saying. It's interesting because I've, I've thought about how in the non-physical realities, we do not tend to like, so to speak, hang out with those that we don't resonate with. Yeah, like you say, you that. just walk away if it's not... You just walk away. Right. You see, we each resonate with certain things, people, places, energies. And we tend to very naturally gravitate, to like attracts like, you know, that old law of attraction thing. So in non-physical systems, that happens very quickly. We get together with those who we resonate with very easily. Here on Earth, it can be harder. You know, we have relationships that we can be bound into or whatever, you know. And it's funny because sometimes you would think like, oh, I should stay around this person because, you know, maybe I can really help them. But I was just talking with my wife the other day about how important it is to sometimes make distance. <laughs> if there's someone that you're not resonating with and they're not, they're not being helped by your presence and vice versa, it's actually sometimes the better thing to just not you know, not spend a time with them. Yeah, tough love. Like you can't necessarily walk away from your in-laws. You're going to go there for Thanksgiving and have various interactions, but you don't have to be in their face with the kinds of things oh, that no. you like to talk about. Oh, we're on you the know. same team. No, we're 100% on the same team. They're deeply spiritual, faithful people. Right. And I respect them yeah. very much. We're on the same team. There's not really a conflict, only a perceived conflict. Right. Sounds like what they're into, they feel like what you're into kind of clashes with their religious beliefs or something. Very much. Yeah. yeah. But you know it doesn't. I know. We are, we are all, it's just a role that we're playing and there's not even a need to, I mean, I do get, my ego gets triggered, but there's not really a need for any conflict because they're just playing their role. They Here we are, we're playing these roles. We're all like <laughs> totally deeply engaged in the human thing. I get it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Just tell them you happen to know that Jesus loves you. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought about um, in my 20s before I went through this awakening, I, there was a period of time when I considered being a Lutheran minister because that was the only way. I sensed something was going on. I didn't know what it was. And I, that was the only, that was like the method to me that at the time seemed the most reasonable. And I was very active in my Lutheran church throughout my life. I was an assistant minister for 20 years. I was on the church council. I taught confirmation class. So I've experienced a different side of the religious now being the one who is, you know, opposed, even though I've always been like the church guy, you know, like and genuinely so. But now I have no need to associate with any term or affiliation that's not required. I mean, I'm okay. I like going to, sometimes like we go to church. We go to a Presbyterian church now. I speak at a Unitarian church, but... That's all just, you know, they're all great. It's just form. We get to use it how we wish. And it seems like if your in-laws feel like you've gone astray, you could have deep theological discussions with them. With your background, you could quote scripture right and left and put them at ease. I don't know. Perhaps not. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> That's okay. So thanks a lot, Christian. It's really great getting to know you. Like you were saying, you, you meet these wonderful people. So I feel like I've met a wonderful person in meeting you. And uh, hopefully we'll be in touch from time to time as we go along. 
I feel the same way about you, Rick. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you do. It's very meaningful. Well, thanks so much. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And we will see you next week. Next week, I'm going to interview a guy named Clay Lomakayu Miller, who is Native American. I haven't interviewed too many Native Americans. And there's an upcoming interviews page on BatGap where you can see the other people we have scheduled. So anyway, thanks for listening or watching. Uh, if you want to go to the BatGap website and poke around, you'll see various things you can do there, and like subscribe to the mailing list or the audio, audio podcast and so on. And there will be a page on the website about this interview where I will have a link to Christian's book, both the kind you can buy and the free one that he mentioned. Don't forget to send me that, Christian. You can go to his website and you probably have some kind of, I know you, you do a blog where you write different things and thoughts and so on. And you ever do any webinar or private consultations with people or any, any kind of one-on-one things like that? Yeah, I, I'm happy to do one-on-ones. You know, I certainly don't charge anything. I just, I'm happy to help if I can somehow. If anybody would like to email me, it's a walk in the physical at gmail.com. Great. You could be a little busy after this interview. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Anyway, so thanks. And uh, we'll be in touch. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.